to have those kind of casual, low stakes interactions with people whose lives are affected by the decisions you make. If you can do that, it changes the amount of energy you bring to your work. And this is speaking as an engineer now, you're energized for the work, you're responsible, like you don't want to disappoint them. If you have follow on questions to ask, you're going to ask those questions because you it's not abstract anymore. This isn't just there's some customer, it's Marie. And Marie ran payroll and accidentally paid a contractor, you know, $4,000 because your user interface sucked. Oh, well, let's, that feels bad. And that's really valuable information and go and fix it. And so you're going to make better decisions if you have that kind of personal connection. So my overall summary of extreme programming is a rich social network and short feedback loops. All the rest is to support those two things. Creating great products isn't just about product managers and their day-to-day interactions with developers. It's about how an organization supports products as a whole, the systems, the processes, and cultures in place that help companies deliver value to their customers. With the help of some boundary-pushing guests and inspiration from your most pressing product questions, we'll dive into this system from every angle and help you think like a great product leader. This is the Product Thinking Podcast. Here's your host, Melissa Perry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Product Thinking Podcast. Today, I've got a very special guest, Kent Beck, the founder of Extreme Programming, Agile Manifesto Signatory and prolific software developer who's had a really illustrious career. So welcome to the podcast, Kent. Thank you so much, Melissa. And it's not just a signatory of the Agile Manifesto. I am the first signatory of the Agile Manifesto because we listed our names alphabetically. <laughs> so you're the John Hancock person who stands out on there. It's Beck et al. And, and that's all there is to it. <laughs> that's great. So Kent, we met a couple years ago when you were at Facebook and you were coaching a bunch of product teams and software engineers there, helping them get better at learning Agile, helping them with their development methods. What have you been up to since then? So I was at Facebook 2011 to 2018, which is an interesting contrast because it was a very different, uh, it went from 2,000 employees to 25,000 employees in that amount of time. It was really a different company from the beginning to the end. And then uh, 2019, I joined Gusto, small business payroll and benefits, end of plug. And as a software fellow, which means I get to kind of go around and find big picture cultural issues and try and head them off before they get too big. And I do, I spend a lot of my time coaching. That was pretty much all I did at Facebook. And that's the bulk of my work at Gusto until recently when I've become an actual manager for the first time since 1988 and uh, uh, managing a project. So so I'm finding that interesting and not something I want to continue doing. (laughs) It's good to know what you don't want to do in addition to what you do want to do. (laughs) Absolutely. Before you went to Facebook too, were you consulting or working for other companies? I was consulting, yeah. Yeah. What made you want to go inside to Facebook? Two kids in college for six years running. Yeah, that would do it. (laughs) That's great. So we went from consulting into the big companies and you get to manage a team as well. So a lot of our 
you know, most of our listeners are product managers. And one of the questions I keep getting from them is about how to work more effectively with software engineers, what makes a good partnership. I'd love to hear from you. Like, what have you seen work really well when product managers and engineers come together? And tell us some stories or something about where you've seen this be super effective. But I'd also want to hear the horror stories about when you haven't as well. Sure. Right now, Patrick, our product manager, has deep expertise in the domain that we're working with. So he was one of the users of the system that we're replacing. And that's really helpful. His domain knowledge is extensive, but it's more the relationships that he has with the people who's, who are still going to be there as users that we find extremely valuable. It's one of the lessons from extreme programming 20 years ago or philosophies is that the greatest value is created when you have somebody with a capability talk to somebody with a need. And that conversation creates value. So in the extreme programming model, a product manager is more like a cocktail party host, making sure that the right introductions are made, making sure that the right conversations happen, that if somebody needs to join a conversation, that happens, as opposed to being kind of a chess player and moving all the pieces around and figuring out where everything's going to go perfectly. You don't know how a party's going to go, but you certainly, you know, somebody with those kinds of sensitivities can see when a conversation is flagging and needs a boost and so on. So when we think about, like when I think about product managers and what they bring to the team too, I'm curious to hear how this fits into extreme programming or how you, how you view it differently. I always see that person, the one who is keeping the pulse on the company, right? Trying to figure out like, what's the overarching strategy? pulling it out of the leaders, bringing that back down to the team and being like, okay, this is where we need to focus. Let's come together and try to figure out what it is we're going to build to actually get there. Do you see that as like on par with what you do with XP or is the product manager a little bit different? They're just more about facilitating introductions. So I'll distinguish between XP kind of the book form and Mm -hmm. what my team is currently doing. In the book form, our feeling was if we were just around customers, people whose lives were affected by the software we were building, if we were just around them all the time and they were part of this world of conversation, then what the programmers did, generally speaking, would be valuable and useful to customers. And that's certainly part of it. There are big picture issues and next step kind of issues that are out of the scope of the thinking of most of the people on the team. And I think those are places where there's very particular skills, the kind of skills that you teach come in really handy. So how will we know that we have been successful? You know, when are we reaching diminishing returns on some thread of development? When is it time to begin experimenting? One of the things I developed at Facebook was this 3X model, the explore, expand, extract, where Early extreme programming was looking for the way that teams ought to, ought to interact to come together to build software. And something I observed at Facebook at its best was that there were th- really three modes of development and interaction. This early exploration was a very different kind of beast, different rules, different trade-offs to something starts to take off and now you're hitting roadblock after roadblock after roadblock. 
well, at first, nobody cares. Now people care and they're angry because your product doesn't do what you want it to do. That's actually great news because getting people to care is really hard. And that kind of vertical growth is, again, very different from now you've scaled up and now you're making incremental progress. All of a sudden, people being angry is a really bad sign because it means they're about to stop paying you. So the role of product management, as with the role of software developer, changes depending on which of those phases you are. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so with the the product manager in the explore, exploit, extract model, right? How do you see the role differing, right? Like if you're in explore mode, to me, that's like we're searching for what it is we're going to be building. We're trying to figure out like we're characterized by like tons of customer research and experiments and discovery and trying to figure out like what it is that we're actually going to land. And then when we get into expand, it's like scaling it, right? Mm -hmm. And then when you talk about extract, when you talk about extract, what do you mean there? So now you're at scale. Mm -hmm. You have a sustainable business. You're profitable in some way and you want revenues to go up and costs to go down. Okay, so, and you don't want to risk your stream of profits in the process. So there's a risk analysis as part of it. What are the bounds within which we can experiment? And if we step over those bounds, then we risk tanking what we have. Because original extreme program, you said courage. We have the value of courage. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. But if if you're making a billion dollars a year and somebody comes up to you with a bold, courageous idea, you smack them. You don't want that. You want to know that where are the edges? What, where are the boundaries? So risk management is part of it. And then planning for and executing experiments to see, okay, do things get a little bit better? Do, uh, does revenue go up a little bit? Do costs go down a little bit? Based on these experiments, something that product managers can help plan. In extract, planning ahead is really valuable because one, you have a bunch of information and two, you got a lot to lose. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're exploring planning, now you that should be, you should have crazy ideas. Try every crazy thing as long as it's cheap and it's not illegal or immoral because you never know where the value is going to come from. So things that feel like product management, you know, let me build a roadmap, let me negotiate with stakeholders. When you're exploring None of that is valuable because you just don't know enough. There's no leverage point where making a little bit better product decision gives you higher profitability. No, it's more like doing things that are a little bit crazier probably brings you bigger rewards. So it's not that there isn't a place for product thinking, but the style of product thinking is very different in Explore. I'm very skeptical of customer research. The proof of the pudding is put some feature in front of a user and they use it or they don't use it. And if they don't use it, like it doesn't matter how much sense it makes to you that they would love this product if they don't love the product. Yeah, how much, that's a good good way to dig into this too. Like how much customer research have you seen? Are you just like, no, nobody should be doing customer research or what's the right balance? No, not in something in front of it. In Explorer, it doesn't make any sense to me. Ah, interesting. Because anything you can figure out just by thinking, it's a big world. Somebody's Mm -hmm. thought of that before. It's the, you're drinking beers on Friday and somebody goes, wow, if we could just delete all these messages after 24 hours, that would be great. And everybody goes, 
oh, good, yeah, that would be fantastic. And somebody goes, well, let's just try it and see what happens. And then you end up with Snapchat, right? Where the, the premise of it is ridiculous. If you have a messaging system, you want the messages to last forever, right? And index and search and pull them up and people should be able to count on a messaging system. And everybody believed that. And along came this crazy idea. So they took messaging and they took ephemerality and they put them together and they put it in front of people. It didn't make sense at the moment that they created it. No user research would have uncovered the desire for this behavior in a system. I think there's two different types, though. Like, I I, I don't know. I think you can still uncover those types of things. Everybody likes to serve Steve Jobs at me being like, nobody asked for the iPod or the iPhone or whatever. And I'd call them like latent needs, exactly kind of what you're describing with the, like, you put these two things together and you're like, wow, I couldn't even concept that solution in my head. I never knew what to look for. But I believe like it's the product team's job, right? Like product managers and developers, the people working on it to look at the customers. And if you go out and do good user research, which is like watch observing how they live, right? Like watching them use things, do that. That's what kind of opens up your eyes to like, hey, there's something in here, right? That I could, I know how to build it. Like they don't need to know how to build it. They're the customer. They're going to buy it from me, but I don't need to ask them if they'll use it, but I can uncover like a gap where I think we can use technology to solve that. If I have to put my money, I'm going to put my money on teams that are actually building things and shipping really quickly. Okay. And then, so- and then observing, observing how people actually use stuff. If there's a strong domain knowledge, then that's a huge plus. So the Gusto founders, their families all had small businesses. They watched their parents do paper with paper and pencil. The need was really there and obvious. Now, it turns out executing on that across 1,300 tax agencies and blah, 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 is enormously difficult, especially at scale. So that's where Gusto as a, as a business succeeds is we have this moat of domain knowledge but the intimate observation of how a business runs, yeah, that's hugely powerful. But then you've got to go, I don't know, maybe pencil and paper is good enough. You've got to go make a thing, sit it in front of people and how they react. That's the moment. Everything until you watch how a real person really reacts with your real software in a real situation, everything before that's just prep. And the less prep you have, the more experiments you can afford. And the more experiments you can afford, the better your chances of rolling double sixes. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, I, I always think the fastest way to find out is to put it in front of somebody and see it. I think one of the pushbacks I've gotten, because I preach that to everybody, just go run some experiments, build something, ship it, right? And see what happens. I've worked with a lot of healthcare companies lately. I've worked with a lot of like larger compliance-driven companies, <laughs> let's put it that way, right? Uh-huh. Who go, it's going to take us a year to build that thing and put it out there, which I always think you can get it done faster. But I've seen a situation, for example, where in a healthcare company, in order to build the actual first MVP of the product, because it had so much data that it needed on the back end, it also had to be compliant with HIPAA compliance and stuff. It was going to take quite a while to build this first version. It was like a six-month project just to get it out the door. If that's the minimum cycle, it's the minimum cycle. And I also don't accept that. For 20 years, I've been working with a company in Switzerland called Square Life. And life insurance is about as regulated as you get. 
if you want to bring a new product to market, you'd think the the cycle time has got to be 24 months, absolute minimum. And that's only if you assume that 24 months is okay. And they were able to build a relationship with regulators and build products in such a way that they could plug in different things, different ways, and they can launch a product in a month or even in a week and be compliant and learn that much more about their users in the process. So yes, and drawing that boundary and saying, within these walls, we're safe to experiment and outside these walls, we aren't. That's a choice. That's a decision that we make. And I think people accept the bounds that somebody else drew way too readily. And, you know, if things are moving slow enough, you're probably okay doing that. But if somebody comes along who figures out a way to iterate on insurance products every week and the novelty or the innovation of the products becomes business important, you're stuffed if somebody else figures that out. I love that. <laughs> what do you think is that like so I completely agree because you you watch these startups out there like Lemonade, right? Completely disrupting the insurance industry. I worked with some really big insurance companies and I try to get them to experiment and all I hear was we can't experiment, we can't do that. It's going to take us 6 years. We got to put it up the bureaucracy. It's like, well, Lemonade can. Like Lemonade's going to take you for all your worth pretty soon if you just like let it go while you're not putting anything out there. What do you see change that type of thinking, right? In the organization you were talking about where they were getting ready to shift. Like, what's the impetus behind that? Like, how do you get people to realize they need to do this? Bankruptcy. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is, that is the answer, yeah. <laughs> There's a saying that science advances one funeral at a time. <laughs> That's a little bit of it. There are notable exceptions where companies really have turned around how they do things. But my default when I hear about gigantic corpse digital transformation is just to roll my eyes because it's like, okay, you know, countdown. Let's uh, get a pool on uh, when these guys get bought out because it, it's the incentives. So this is a thing for me recently is studying incentives. I have a Twitter space every Thursday night called the Incentives for Geeks with my friend Keith Adams. And we look at incentives. You look at the incentives inside of a big corporation. It's Nobody has the incentive to make these changes. So rather than push it to say, well, well, what are the techniques we have to teach which people? If they are punished for using those techniques, it doesn't matter what the techniques are and it doesn't matter how well you teach them. If the incentives are there not to use them, they're not going to use them. People aren't stupid. People are doing the things that they're incentivized to do. Now, incentives is complicated. It's not, oh, you know, you give people money to do it and they do it. You know, if you give people a dollar for every line of code you write, you get people writing scripts to write code. You don't want that to happen. Incentives are, are rich. It's about storytelling. It's about meaning and purpose. It's about fellowship. It's about personal growth and the sense of mastery. The world of incentives is rich. If you in a big company, though, man, the incentives are woven so tightly into the fabric of the company not to do new things or do things in a different way. It's amazing those exceptions that actually manage to turn that around because it's there's just every little thing. It's like if you I don't know if you've ever moved a tree 
you dig around the roots of the tree and then you pull on it like it's not coming. Oh, there's another root. Then you get the shovel underneath it and you poke it a little bit and you're like, okay, there's the last one. And you pull it up again. There's another root. Like there's just always going to be hundreds of ways that people are incentivized to keep doing what they're doing. And in your paltry little two or three incentives to do things in some new way, just it's really hard to stack up against all the things that are there to maintain the status quo. Yeah. And I find in large companies too, there's been people there for so long who are used to the status quo. They're comfortable, right? Like they, they were like, no, I was just chilling, doing my job. And then all of a sudden you changed my job description on me, called me a product manager. And I don't know what that is. And now I got to go learn how to do something else. Why? Yeah. Which I could fail at. I wasn't Mm -hmm. ever going to fail at what I was doing before. Now I have this thing, which I could fail at. And, you know, I might get a 3% pay rise if, uh, if I do it really well. There's no upside. There's tons of downside. All of a sudden, those people aren't happy. Well, yeah, of course, they're not happy. Yeah. And that, that's going to prevent anybody from trying anything that's too hard. Yeah. Why go try to figure out how to get around compliance and work with legal to do new things when it's harder for you than what you were doing before? Yeah, there's no upside for me. There's downside for me. Forget it. Okay, so in these companies that maybe don't have this baggage, (laughs) do not have the digital transformation going on, let's say we can get out there, we can ship things pretty quickly. What are you observing? Like, you know, XP, we talk a lot about the team being close to the customers. Like, what's that look like for you in practice? Like, what do the product managers do? How do they work with the engineers? How do the engineers stay close to the customer? So we have a conversation every morning that includes, and so the teams, the, the team is not close to the customer. The customers are part of the team. Okay. So we all get the same swag. We all attend the same ceremonies. The identification is with the team first. Some of them are engineers. Some of them are tax professionals. Some of them facilitate that conversation. I just try and make sure everybody has snacks. So. That's where it starts, is that this is a conversation. Every morning, we get together. Now we're remote, which is a little awkward. I swear, 10 times a day, I say, if we were just sitting together, this wouldn't be a problem. And I know, I know that's a contrarian opinion and, you know, remotes, fully remotes the future and whatever. And there, there's, yes, there's a lot to be gained from being remote, especially like not dying is a big plus, but there's a lot lost also in that. So we get on a Zoom call in the morning. Everybody does. The tax professionals and the engineers and everybody else and talk about what it, what happened. Interesting last yesterday. What are things that are coming up? It's not a stand up, but it's just a conversation. We're orienting ourselves like we were having coffee and people are chit chatting. It's too bad that it's hard to do or impossible to do side conversations on Zoom, but there you go. There's a business opportunity for somebody out there in product land. Go figure out how to do, how to have coffee with Zoom in a natural kind of way. So we have the, the, this conversation and then people pair up or they mob up or they whatever, however they're going to do it. And the, the Tax professionals go and do tax professional stuff. Usually, sometimes they work directly with software engineers. It's a very fluid kind of, it's a conversation that turns into programming. 
and oh. validation because in working with the tax agencies, validation is a huge part of the job. And are those tax people, are they part of Gusto or are they your like people outside of Gusto? They're all Gusto employees. Okay. So then do you consider the customer then on your, like as part of your team, would those all be Gusto employees or would you actually be bringing in like a small business owner or something to be part of the team? The nature of, of my project is that they'll all be Gusto employees. Okay. Uh, more generally, so Gusto has been focused on smaller businesses, but we're, we're supporting larger and larger businesses all the time now. But I was pushing for us to get a boba shop in the office and reduce the rent for the person as long as they were a Gusto customer, as long as they were running their payroll so that over your boba, you could go, oh, and uh, I saw, you know, did you run payroll yesterday? Oh, yeah. How'd that go? Do you have any problems? I would. Yeah, absolutely. Would love to have that kind of daily interaction with if you're making your programmer, you make decisions and those decisions affect people's lives. You should be able to stare those people in the in the face in a socially appropriate way, which, we, you know, I understand we have to teach programmers that. But there you go to have those kind of casual low stakes interactions with people whose lives are affected by the decisions you make. If you can do that, it changes the amount of energy you bring to your work. And this is speaking as an engineer now, you're energized for the work, you're responsible, like you don't want to disappoint them. If you have follow on questions to ask, you're going to ask those questions because you, it's not abstract anymore. This isn't just there's some customer, it's Marie. And Marie ran payroll and accidentally paid a contractor, you know, $4,000 because your user interface sucked. Oh, well, let's, that feels bad. And that's really valuable information and go and fix it. And so you're going to make better decisions if you have that kind of personal connection. So my overall summary of extreme programming is a rich social network and short feedback loops. All the rest is to support those two things. I like that model too, with the engineers, especially because one of the biggest questions I got, and I mean, like that, that's always how I worked with my engineers. Like I bring them to, if we were doing user interviews, they come with me to user interviews. They would come watch the people. And I've always been such a strong advocate for it because I don't want to sit around answering questions from the developers all day about some of those things, right? Like they, they should know. And I get this question all the time from product managers. Like if I'm supposed to be going out doing user research or, you know, working with stakeholders, right? Who's going to tell the developers what to work on next? And I'm like, or like if I'm in discovery mode, let's say, and I've got a small team of developers with me, but somebody gave me a big team of developers. Like I've got eight developers and really like, we're building something, but it only takes like three people to like work on it right now. What does the rest do? I'm like, well, you know, I've never heard of a company that lacked four things to do. Um, <laughs> I think, yep. I think they can probably decide amongst themselves what's the most important things to do, right? Like fixing stuff, getting out there, getting that information. But I feel like we always see this product management role, which I don't agree with the like pipeline into the development feeder where <laughs> If that pipeline ever breaks, like you, you shall never be able to walk away from your developers or they won't possibly know what to do. Well, I think if you feel that way, you've already made the mistake. And trying to 
I don't know. Do, do you talk about Frederick Winslow Taylor? No, but tell me. Okay. So he, he was a, the first industrial engineer. The time and motion studies and all, all that. Oh, Taylorism. Taylorism. That, okay, that gotcha. Taylor. Yes. I don't even know that's his full name, but and, yes. <laughs> and so if that's your belief that you should have smart people making big decisions and then you can have less informed, less connected people just implementing those decisions downstream. If that's your belief, then yeah, the perspective you're, you're talking about makes some sense. That's just not my belief. I would like all of everybody to be involved. I want everyone's emotional energy activated. I want their creativity activated. I want their humanity activated so that they have empathy for the, the people whose lives they affect with their decisions. I want them to have skin in the game so that they themselves experience the consequences of their decisions. And if that's true, you're going to come up with stuff that you can't even imagine. Now, some people don't want to come up with stuff they can't even imagine. They wanted, they're willing to settle for the stuff they can imagine. Okay, well, that's good enough for you, fine. But as an engineer, I don't want to work on that. As an investor, which I've started doing now, I, I'm not really interested in companies that are building stuff that they can imagine. I want them to be in this kind of a little bit crazy, a little bit because it's unpredictable. Yes, it should be unpredictable. In your exploration phase, you should be going, wow, the most exciting thing you can hear in exploration is it turns out. Somebody said, well, it turns out, wow, that's gold right there. Now you've got something that nobody else can sit there and think up. They're going to have to walk the same path, but they're necessarily steps behind you. Did you know I have a course for product managers that you could take? It's called Product Institute. Over the past seven years, I've been working with individuals, teams, and companies to upskill their product chops through my fully online school. We have an ever-growing list of courses to help you work through your current product dilemma. Visit productinstitute.com and learn to think like a great product manager. Use code THINKING to save $200 at checkout on our premier course, Product Management Foundations. You've been in these companies helping coach these software engineers to, you know, be closer, have more empathy, be closer to the customers, experiment faster, all these things. A lot of these companies, I know we talked a little bit with digital transformations, but still some of them, I'm sure it's a new way of working for them, right? Like they they still may initially have that point of view before you come in of like, hey, my engineers, you know, that more of that Taylorism concept, like, let me just keep them full and let them turn out. What do you do to help break that mold and bring the engineers back to knowledge work and get people to say that, see that? Mostly I don't because I find that very frustrating. In any company that's been successful at all, they are into that extract phase. And there are better ways and worse ways of engineering in extract. Oftentimes there's an order of magnitude improvement possible. And there's a lot of benefit to doing that because you're at scale. You know, if you're if you're shaving off a penny from a billion transactions a day, it's a, it adds up quickly. But even there, the incentives really aren't aligned for people to do really good work. Like, okay, you, you, <laughs> one of my favorite examples at Facebook, there was a vest you could get that said, "I saved Facebook a billion dollars." 
what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you're working with infrastructure at that kind of scale. Mm-hmm. So it was not unusual for people to save Facebook a billion dollars. How many they, desks were there? I'm just like curious now. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know exactly, but tens. Okay. It's a vest. It's not a Bentley with I save Facebook a billion dollars picked out in diamonds on the side, which would be a tiny, tiny fraction of the actual billion dollars. So, I mean, engineers do it because it's an interesting intellectual challenge to make that kind of improvement. But really, the incentives aren't aligned for people to do that kind of work, even something epic like that. So. What are the chances of somebody buried deep in the bowels of some big organization becoming fully realized as an engineer or fully realized as a product person? There's no upside. There's a lot of downside to that kind of behavior. You're taking on a lot of risk. You're going contrary probably to your manager's incentives and their manager's incentives. And so, wow. Yeah, I just don't. I don't do that kind of thing anymore because it's just too frustrating for me. Even inside Augusto, here's a here's a nine year old company. There's still or already pressure to make decisions before they're ripe, before it's time to make the decision. And so I don't, and I feel the pressure to do it. And it's a good company, and it's functioning well. And already it's annoying to me, and it, that's only going to get worse. Yeah, as these companies scale, that always gets worse right there. Yeah, there's there's more people with incentives not to make progress from your perspective. So this is another question I get a lot from product managers. They're always asking, like, how do I motivate my engineers? How do I get them excited about what we're working on? Have you seen something like if the incentives aren't aligned, let's say like you're stuck in a situation where that's just not happening. Is there any other way they can get them on board or or what should they do with them to get them excited? No, if the incentives aren't aligned, don't, then align the incentives. Okay. What if you yeah. don't have the power to do that? You always have some power to do that. So for example, finding and emphasizing purpose is hugely energizing and we forget it. So yeah. find your big goal. Don't fuss about the exact roadmap to get there. Find your big goal. Here's the thing. When we accomplish this, we can have a big old party. Okay. And emphasize that every day. So much of leadership is just repetition. You find something and you say it over and over again until somebody says it back to you, except they think it's their idea. And then you can move on to the next thing. So here's this big goal and we're going towards it. Here's this big goal and we're going towards it. Here's this big goal and we're going towards it. And you say that over and over again. And people are like, okay, well, now I know where I fit in the larger scheme of things. Pre-digesting work is the worst possible. That's forget it. Engineers want to own interesting problems and solve them and feel a sense of uh, like that was my problem and I solved it. So presenting engineers with lists of features It's just death. Forget it. No, users are behaving this way. The error rate of this transaction is too high. We're losing people at this part of the funnel. People are spending too much time doing this thing. We're getting complaints about the performance of this part. Okay, stop. Don't tell anybody how to solve that problem. Tell them 
what observations you'd like to be able to make that you can't make now. Okay, that's scary. There's decisions embedded in there that could go wrong. And you, if you try to maintain control of all those details, that's exactly what juices engineers is being able to control some of those details. So this is a constant struggle for me to go to the team and it's evolving. I say, here's how I would like to measure progress. By the end of the week, I'd like to. By the end of the month, I'd like to. By the end of the quarter, I'd like to. And then they do some stuff and I think, I don't know if that's going to add up, but they know more about it than I do. So let me keep my eyes on what I'd like to observe about the system, meaning us, the software, our customers, the business model. What do I want to observe about that? And then I can't get better results than letting people do what they're going to do to make those things happen. If I try and get in there and micromanage it, I'm going to get worse results. That's what I imagine. Like, to me, that's the only way things can scale too, right? Like, otherwise you just have a bunch of micromanagers and you need 80 levels of control (laughs) throughout the- Micromanagers of the micromanagers, yeah. Exactly, yeah. No, I I like that. I I just feel like maybe we don't trust developers enough to make (laughs) their own decisions, which is stupid to me. But I'm like, these are all super smart people that we work with. But I feel like organizations get stuck in that that mode that you're talking about where they're like, they're just code monkeys. They're not, they're not decision makers. They're just code monkeys. Go do the tech piece. Correct. Which is a commentary on the leadership. That's not a commentary on programmers. Yeah, for sure. I agree. And so if you don't trust your programmers to make reasonable decisions and receive feedback for them, then go figure out the context in which they can make reasonable decisions and receive feedback on them. I agree with that. I like that. So this kind of leads into another question that I had for you. I always get this from my new product managers because a lot of them don't come from a tech background or a programming background. So they're asking like, what do I need to learn? And a lot of them are trying to take boot camps to learn how to code and do these other things. I'm of the opinion of you need to be technical to be a software product manager, but you don't need to be a programmer because that's what the engineers do. (laughs) Like why you're not supposed to be doing their job, right? But you have to be dangerous enough to talk to them. But I love your perspective on that. You need empathy Mm -hmm. and you need credibility. And also being a programmer is one way to have empathy and earn credibility, but it's not the only way. So our product manager Uh, near as I can tell, can't program a lick. And it's fine because he really understands tax operations. And so he has empathy for programmers because we talk all the time about uh, very specific, what Vermont, am I right? You know, kind of questions. And he's got a lot of credibility because he's lived on the other side of the fence. How you achieve that, different people can do it differently. Me as a coach, I have the same problem. I need to have empathy and I need to have credibility. It really helps me because I've got a computer science background with certain kinds of people in certain situations. You know, somebody's that young punk who's thinks they know it all and I can pull out knowledge they don't possess and make it clear to them that they don't know it all. And there's moments when in certain conversations, it's a really valuable thing to be able to do. But that's not the only way to be a coach. You need stories to tell and uh, storytelling is another, like we could go on and on and on about the quality of storytelling, but 
instead of thinking about, well, which technical boxes do I need to tick off? You need empathy and you need credibility. How are you going to build that? Okay, well, take a boot camp. Okay, that helps. Go learn, go explain your domain knowledge to 20 different people so you get really good at it. That's a way of developing credibility. Build a stronger network of people on the sides of the users so that when a programmer says, da-da-da-da-da, you say, hey, I know exactly who to ask. Oh, that's great. That's credibility. But it's more about your social status in the team as a whole than it is about, oh, well, if you don't know what an if statement is, get out of here. Yeah. You're right. Programmers are good at if statements, but they also understand lots of people aren't. Yeah. And I don't feel like you should have to duplicate that skill if that's not your your job either. Right. But I find where the credibility for product managers starts to deteriorate is when the engineers come back and say, hey, it's going to take us this long to do it. Or like, this is what we're going to do. And then they question it. Right. And then they're like, why is it going to be that long? You're crazy. Make it faster, blah, blah, blah. But they're never reducing the scope or actually changing what the ask is. Oh, yeah. You do that once and you've lost it. Yeah. Right. That's it's a relationship. And when somebody gives you information, when somebody can say something authoritatively and they do and you say, nah, then that's it. You're never going to get an honest answer unless you repair that relationship. And that code monkey's style is such a, you know, I have higher status than you. I can tell you how long your job's going to take. That's not a productive relationship. It's a whole lot harder to be peers. Yeah, because you don't get to be in charge and you don't get to dictate, but you do get to deal with reality, which in the long run is better for everybody. Now, maybe short run though, that your incentives aren't lined up that way. But in the long run, that that's what I want for me and that's what I want for my teams. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So you've been using XP forever since it's been around, obviously, um, since you founded it. Started a long time ago, still using it today. How has it changed? And what do you think is going to change about it in the future too? So one big change is a bunch of the stuff that I thought was extreme wasn't actually extreme. You know, we thought, <laughs> we'll have a shippable product every three weeks. Oh! Reminds me of the joke about what did the snail say on the turtle's back? Wee! <laughs> so, you know, we thought we were awesome and we were just blazing along. And now you have releases to production, you know, multiple times a day. Well, part of my future research or research towards the future is what if you had thousands or tens of thousands of releases to production every day? What does that look like? How does everybody's role change? And what technology we need do we need to get it there? But that's that's you know kind of longer term. So part of the big what changed was things that seemed extreme don't seem extreme anymore. So we need to figure out where the new boundaries are. Something else that's that needs to change, and I intend to change to the degree that I have influence on it, is we ignored a whole bunch of power differentials. I was a pale male, grew up in the Silicon Valley. I had no idea what all of my privileges were. And Yes, there's a lot in extreme programming about social relationships and making them safe, but safe for whom? Well, safe for people who kind of look like me and sound like me. And if XP wants to really come back and be a force, we need 
to have ways of addressing that so that more people can bring more of their geeky skills to bear on the problems of the world. We can't reject half the people in the world because they have two X chromosomes. We can't reject two thirds of the people in the world because their skin happens to be brown. Like we have to both become aware of and navigate the power differentials that we all bring into software development. It's a problem, but it's also an opportunity because the scrums of the world just pretend that stuff doesn't exist. So that's the thing. If XP became the place where, oh, this is an extreme programming team. Well, even though I look different than the norm or think different than the norm or sound different than the norm, I know that I'm going to have a place there to apply my talents to problems that really matter. If that became the, the brand, if that became the expectation, then it's unstoppable. The first few times that I said that in front of XP audiences, though, oof, uh, crossed arms and a lot of mm, chairs creaking and a lot of, oh, yeah. but uh, that's the way forward. I'm sure there's people in the audience there too saying, okay, finally, somebody acknowledged that I'm welcome here. Yep. So that's pretty powerful. I, I'm excited to be a part of that team, be a part of that group. Oh, good. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Ken. It's been a pleasure to get to catch up with you and uh, hear all about what you're up to and how product managers and software engineers should work better together. Thank you so much, Melissa. Yeah, and if anybody wants to read more about what you're working on, maybe even join that incentives chat you were talking about, where can they find you? Geekincentives.substack.com. Follow me at Kent Beck on Twitter. Yeah, those are the easiest ways. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again, and please stay tuned for the next episode of the Product Thinking Podcast, which will be out next Wednesday.